Welcome back to another episode of the Just Checking In podcast. I'm your host, Freddie Cocker, and this podcast is brought to you by Vent, a place where everyone, but especially men and boys, can open up about their mental health issues, break down stigmas, and start conversations. Each episode, I check in with a special guest. We have a natter and a chat about all things mental health, as well as anything and everything else they're passionate about. If it helps that person with their mental health, we discuss it. My special guest for today's episode is conflict journalist, producer and director Andy Hayward. Andy is a freelance journalist and previously worked for Vice News in their international team producing news pieces and documentaries. Andy also previously worked on Vice's flagship Emmy award winning show Vice News Tonight on HBO. I came across Andy through friend of the pod Jake Hamrahan who interviewed him on his podcast Popular Front about an upcoming documentary he has produced within Russia itself called Warped by War Inside Putin's Russia which covers the suppression of the Russian regime of dissidents and those who oppose the war in Ukraine and it also interviews people who support it too. In this episode we discuss the film in depth through a mental health lens, his previous films he has done in Russia and Belarus and his wider journey in conflict journalism. For industry issues, we discuss work-life balance and the responsibility he feels as a journalist to capture the stories of those who speak out against the Russian regime but not put their lives in danger. For Andy's mental health, we discuss the importance of having positive relationships in your life as a release valve from the day-to-day of conflict journalism, the stress and paranoia that comes with working in a repressive country like Russia and how that bleeds out into his personal life, and his family military background and how that shaped his attitude towards mental health. So this is how my conversation with Andy Hayward went. Andy, welcome to the Just Checking In pod. Thank you very much for letting me check in with you. After listening to your episode with Jake on Popular Front, I've nicked about six or seven of his guests now. I knew I had to get you on and you're doing some absolutely brilliant work, some groundbreaking work in my opinion, for sure. And here we are. So first of all, how are you on this Sunday morning, mate? Yeah, very well. Thank you very much for getting me on, Freddie. I really appreciate it. Looking forward to chatting. No problem at all, mate. We have got absolutely loads to talk about, and I loved your new film in so many ways, which we'll get into. So without further delay, are you ready to start the show and talk all about it? Ah, uh, 100%. We're going to start your pod, mate, by talking about your journey into journalism, specifically conflict journalism. So tell me first how and why you discovered a love for reporting or producing, writing, storytelling within a conflict and geopolitical lens. Yeah, I mean, I, I've probably got a bit more of an unusual journey than a lot of people. I mean, I didn't go and do a journalism course. I didn't initially start out in sort of a journalistic space either. I was initially, I was interested in sort of television and I was interested in lots of sort of TV and production, basically. So, you know, there were sort of comedy shows that I really liked. There was, you know, documentary stuff I really liked. There were sort of things that sort of sat in the middle. And I basically decided I sort of wanted to work in sort of the media space in some way. And uh, I, not really having any connections or anything initially, I wrote to a lot of companies where I'd seen their work, you know, the production companies where I'd seen the end card at the end of a show I'd liked. And I, I just wrote to a lot of people to see, like, well, could I get some experience, basically? And the only company that really got back to me and offered me something was actually a comedy company. So initially, I was working in sort of comedy. I was general kind of like office dog's body in this small company and just... 
that's where I sort of learned how to shoot, how to edit. And, and at that point, I was doing quite a bit of like development work as well. So it'd often be sort of working with comedians and young acts, sort of, you know, shooting tasters, shooting little bits of performance and sort of putting stuff together to sort of share with broadcasters and try to get commissions and pitches off the ground. So that was quite a different initial space where I started. But after having worked there for a while, I was a freelancer and I was freelancing, doing various sort of stuff. But a lot of what I was doing was video editing at that point. And video editing got me into into Vice back in 2013 was when I started working for them when they were, you know, their video side of things was still like a lot less small scale at that, at that mm. point in time. And after freelancing for them on and off for a few months, that was a point when they decided they wanted to launch a news channel, which happened in, in 2014. Uh, Shane Smith, the founder, and he was the CEO at the time, kind of decided he wanted Vice to be like a kind of global youth news platform. I, mean, I think it was something he had said at the Abu Dhabi media conference. He'd sort of said this thing, and then it was like, well, he wanted to make it a reality. So they started basically crewing up news across Vice's offices at that time. London was a big hub for that. As is common with a lot of sort of American news outfits, it's kind of the hub for sort of international reporting. And initially, I worked on Vice as a, primarily a video editor. So I was cutting a lot of their stories. But the way Vice was, it was like a job where there was a lot more probably editorial and creative sort of freedom than a lot of sort of video editing jobs, particularly in the news space. So, you know, it was all like a bit more kind of lo-fi approach. Like sometimes you'd come and, you know, you've got like two months of footage from like Syria or something, or that we've bought it off a freelance. And it was all like a quite haphazard. It's like, well, what, what's the story here? What are we trying to say? Then I worked sort of as an editor and, a, and sort of edit producer on some pieces for Vice then. And then, you know, that was obviously in the conflict space as well as kind of other stories as well. And then, in about 2018, I moved into producing and became a producer working on like Vice's HBO show and then basically stuck with sort of producing and worked on Vice's Showtime show. And then, you know, and then to the point where I'm doing sort of Vice special reports as well. So this last film that came out is kind of a 45 minute long form documentary from Russia, you know, I guess the sort of one off standalone. So, yeah, it's been an interesting journey. I mean, my I think conflict is obviously like a very dramatic and interesting part of like global news coverage so that's been one area of my focus but then also yeah I guess, guess sort of you know, like say geopolitics general uh, news in general like and vice was always like a good opportunity to do lots of stories like over the years that I've you know I've done stuff on crypto I've done stuff on like sort of British politics I've done stuff on conspiracy theorists it's like you know it, it's been like a real sort of eclectic mix and, and opportunity to do lots, lots of things and then a lot last since the war the full-scale invasion of Ukraine it's been very much focused on Russia for me and exploring the impact of, of the war from the Russian side, basically. I want to dive into the documentaries and news pieces you've done now. So the first one I want to briefly touch on, because the Russian film is going to take up most of this podcast, mm. is one that you produced and directed but didn't front in regards to presenting yeah. in 2021, which was in Belarus called Protesters in Belarus are being jailed and killed, but that isn't stopping them which focused on the anti-government protests at the time against current president and Putin ally Alexander Lukashenko, who, for the listeners who don't know, literally looks like a Bond villain. The reason I want to discuss it is the story of Nikita Kravtsov's disappearance and murder by the Belarusian state. So tell the listeners about Nikita and why his story was the focus of the film. Yes, yeah, so obviously, I mean, just to take the listeners back a bit, I mean, it, it probably feels like quite a long time ago. And in many ways, I guess it, I guess it mm. was. Belarus, which is, you know, often... Uh, Lukashenko sort of is branded as sort of Europe's last dictator because, you know, quite autocratic regime he's run since basically the fall of communism. He's been in charge of the country. 
So there was just a big sort of protest movement from a country which has been pretty sort of placid and guess existing under his rule. There was this big uprising, effectively. So at that point, obviously, it's, it's a massive story. You could actually, as a British citizen, get like visas on arrival. So we'd gone there, not with official journalist accreditation, but we did a risk assessment and thought, okay, can we get in and work relatively covertly there to just, you know, cover this very exceptional moment in history, a potential, you know, seismic shift in Belarus and within Europe as well. So we managed to get in. Not everyone in our team got in first time, but we did manage to get in. And then in particular, I think what was important about Nikita's story was the thing that had happened with these protests is, and what had sort of found them into becoming bigger was the violence with which they were put down. So as people were coming onto the streets, the sort of initial response to the security services who were, I think, kind of shocked by the level of sort of upset, but it was very violent. You know, people were beaten, people were attacked. It was a very hard clampdown, but instead of having the effect of of scaring people into inactivity actually sort of found the flames. And the fact they'd been mm. so aggressive, I think, radicalized more people to come up and say sort of enough is enough, basically. And I think Nikita was part of that insofar as like he, you know, he was boldly sort of protesting, carrying uh, the red and white flag, which is a historic flag of Belarus, which became the symbol of the protesters, this historic flag of an independent Belarus. So he was holding one of these flags. He was facing off with riot police. He was quite prominent. It was, you know, there was lots of videos showing him doing that. And basically, it's unclear exactly what happened, but basically the police, the security services decided to take revenge on him is what, what it seems most the most likely, most likely is what happened to him. And he was found the next day, a bit later, he was found hung in some woods and, you know, like injuries to his body as well. And officially they were like, well, it, it just looks like suicide. Although to everyone sort of involved and they knew him, it was like, it. this doesn't look like suicide. It looks like someone's being like... Uh, lynching, yeah. And, and yeah, and lynched, exactly. So I think what was important about that story was obviously it was crucial to sort of telling the violence with which this uprising was going to be put down with. And it was interesting because they, to some degree, moderated their violence actually after incidents like that because on some level there was then like a kind of uneasy truce where the police were there but they sort of calmed it down because they i guess that if as long as they could hold firm they weren't going to lose power they had like a more sort of hands-off approach to a degree but purely just to sort of maintain their position but i think what his death was an example of was just the potential lengths and the brutality that the state was prepared to go to. And it wasn't just in the, you know, that's like sort of the one sort of emotive element of the story, which I think sort of sums up the brutality of the regime. But I mean, you know, there's other characters in our film. We speak with the sort of, they had a coordination council, like a fledgling mm. opposition movement who are, again, going to like, you know, were supporting the candidate Svetlana Tikhonovskaya, because part of the reason that the whole process started was because there had been a presidential election where it's, you know, largely believed that this oppositional figure, Svetlana Tikhonovskaya, who had actually taken to run for the presidency after her husband had been arrested, who was initially running for the presidency. It was widely believed by most Belarusians that she had won the vote, but because of sort of the stuffing of ballot boxes, it was given, you know, you know, back to Lukashenko with, with you know, like a huge majority. So that was kind of the catalyst for it. But this coordination council was formed, which was basically people who supported her as president, even though she was in exile relatively quickly, but they were there supporting her. And, you know, a lot of these, you know, there's one uh, Maria 
Colin Hikova, who was still in prison, who we speak to in the film as well. And, you know, very brutal, hardcore sentences. And a lot of people who, if they weren't in exile, they're basically now in prison who are involved in the opposition. So Nikita's this very violent, bloody, sort of emotive death of one protester. But I think it does sum up a general sort of bigger approach that was happening in, in society that sort of completely crush all resistance. And I mean, and that is ultimately, unfortunately, what happened. This very popular street-based movement. They did calm themselves down the, the security forces, but they held firm. If you see like what happened in Ukraine during like Maidan when mm. President Yanukovych was ousted, that is because you, you got the security services starting to crack. You got units defecting to the opposition. You got basically the fracturing of the security services which are protecting him. That didn't happen in Belarus. And they took their, their by their time. They let the protested march. And I think a lot of this was also on Russian support and Russian advice mm. as well was in the country to sort of like help them sort of strategize their approach. And, you know, it lost steam at the same time they started attacking the heads of the movement. You know, you give someone 10 year sentences, even if that's an absentia, it's like to strike fear into the hearts of anyone who's protesting. And, you know, you like with um Russia, with this latest full scale invasion, you also got sort of a big brain drain, a lot of people who were oppositional or journalists or in you know in some way challenging the government left the country fled the country because of these sort of harsh sentences being handed out and because of you know things like Nikita's death it was very clear to people that you know this is not a safe place to be and you know and there was no regime change and the Belarusian regime seems like it's in a relatively stable place again. Lukashenko was always very good at like basically playing the West and Russia against each other and I think, you know, this war again has sort of put him in a position where like, I don't think he's foolish enough to get involved directly in U in Ukraine, but he's made himself a kind of useful ally to Putin again, which is, is helpful. Like troops are in Belarus, like Russian troops and some logistical support and things like so he's putting himself in a position where I think, again, he has some support. I mean, it, you know, in the context of the war in Ukraine, though, I do think there's always a risk for Belarus. And certainly after the, these violent crackdowns, because the West had kind of opened up to Belarus now and closed down now and then, depending on what was happening at the time. But I think there's, there's always a risk for Belarus now that it kind of ends up getting sort of pushed closer to Russia by this. And, you know, it maybe sees its sovereignty lost to Russia or further sort of ceded to Russia in one way or another. The next film I want to discuss chronologically, and it leads into your newest film, was a piece called Nationalism or Nothing, which focused on the pro-war sentiment in Russia, particularly mm. Russia's answer to conspiracy theorist group QAnon, the deceptively named National Liberation Movement. Except, instead of claims about a secret cabal of celebrity and Hollywood paedophiles, they claim America has basically already invaded and controlled Russia, only Putin can stop them, and they want World War Three through nuclear strikes on Nevada, Washington, and other American cities. So just tell my listeners about this very bonkers and quite dangerous political group. Yeah, I mean, I mean, they're a funny one. It, the sort of Russian ecosystem of kind of ideological groups that are permitted in Russia, you know, these are kind of typical of them. They're kind of like, you know, they claim a movement in like a membership in the hundreds of thousands, which, you know, might be true. They're also like a, a, a sort of street movement insofar as they go on little protests and gatherings. Like as we attend in the film, we attend a protest outside the American embassy. And this is in a context of Russia where, although the constitution protects protest in Russia, today you effectively can't protest anywhere. Like you can't gather and express your free opinion. But surprise, surprise, this one group is kind of basically allowed to. And their leader is a member of the Russian parliament as well. And they also have 
basically constant protests outside even Russian buildings. So they'll be outside the general prosecutor's office, they'll be outside the Russian parliament, the Duma, and they will be there generally with like some placard, which is like, last one I saw around the Duma was sort of threatening nuclear weapon strikes on like America, kind of like going, we need to be harder and tougher on the West is kind of their political position. So they're kind of like, they exist kind of almost to the right of, of sort of Putin. <laughs> Putin. Yeah, already. And to very right wing political consensus, they're kind of more to the right on it. They're also kind of crackpot and they believe like nuclear weapons are a big thing for them. They're kind of obsessed with like changing the protocols of how nuclear weapons are used, you know, having them sort of strike ready and also, I mean, and the leader himself, and when you sort of reference Nevada, I mean, he's basically advocated strikes on the US directly. I mean, with the Nevada one, he's like, well, you know, we should just send sort of one nuke, hit them there to sort of know we're serious kind of thing. Um, Let them know you're there, like in the football saying. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> no, exactly. Yeah, yeah. It's like a, a sort of nudge with a nuke. I don't know. They are probably representative of a small percentage of the population. Like I would say in Russia, there's probably a sort of hardcore and i mean you can you can go by polling data but there's definitely sort of hardcore maybe around 20 percent of russians who you would you know kind of pro-war zealots you know put until i die who are like real true believers and i think nod represent that i mean a lot of their membership is quite old though which is kind of interesting and they're very much draped in the soviet ideology like they still have mm. the, the hammer and sickle the red flag like you know that is one of their go-to banners they kind of are nostalgic for you know the communist party it's syncretic uh, their sort of belief system because it's got that soviet element but then it's also like nationalistic and it's not necessarily saying they want communism although i think some of the members are more that way inclined so it's, it's a strange kind of nostalgic group that wants to bring back State ideology is what they talk about. Like after the fall of communism, like Russia has sort of abolished state ideology and they kind of want to bring that back, a kind of a belief system at the core of the Russian state. But it's like, you know, talking to different members, you got different takes on it. And, you know, they all had like, kind of interesting emotional stories. Like I forget the, the lady we speak to in the piece who said she's prepared to go fight. It's like, you know, they seem to have like their own. Person. Is she though? <laughs> yeah, that's the thing. I don't know about, but this is the thing. You don't know exactly. That's true. But it's like, they all seem to have sort of personal tragedies and sort of a bit of sadness. Like they were kind of happy to be talked to and to express themselves. But like this group was kind of like, almost like, self-help for sort of people who hadn't really got over the fall of the Soviet Union to some degree. So mm. it was a very strange group. And part of the reason we speak to them is because it's interesting that groups like that are one of the few that are actually allowed to be visible. And I think what you see in Russia now is that there's a real fear of any kind of form of autonomy. Even if you had like a pro-war group, I think the authorities would be worried about it because, okay, it might start as a pro-war group, a pro-Putin group that's like, you know, let, let's conquer all of Ukraine. But like if you gave them autonomy and they have a voice well, maybe what they're saying might change. Maybe if they're autonomous, they might change their mind about how they feel about Putin. So I think in Russia, there's a real sense of like, there's not a desire for any movements because a movement can become something dangerous. It can become something oppositional and everything in Russian society, particularly post-war, but you know, for the last 20 years, it's been going in that direction is to control society, to control freedoms, to control people and what they say, what they can do, et cetera. That lady you interviewed, 
you're sitting in a room where a literal mascot of a nuclear warhead is sitting behind her with a smiley face on it. And she says with a straight face that this mascot makes them be taken seriously by people. Mm. Now, the famous saying is that the eyes are a window into the soul and hers look absolutely wild. What was that interview like? I don't imagine you were scared of her, but it must have been a bit like, am I in an episode of Brass Eye here? Yeah, I mean, that's the thing about a group like this. They they are like simultaneously quite scary in the things they say, but then also kind of like impotent and ridiculous. Like <laughs> like you say, there's, it's this plush, big nuclear weapon. It's a Sarmat nuclear missile, and it's like got googly eyes on it. And it's like, we wear this on the street to like reach out to Russians to, you know, make them stop and think. And it's like, God, this is just ridiculous. But then at the same time, it's like, their leader is in the Russian parliament. And it's not that far from the chat that happens on a lot of Russian TV where they very like whimsically and lightheartedly talk about and recklessly talk Genociding about Ukraine. Nuking. Yeah. 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 Genocide in Ukraine or yeah. nuking the Baltics, nuking London, nuking places. And it's like, okay, it's rhetoric and, and maybe it's more performative than real, but it's very worrying when this conversation is normalized that that is then potentially something where if you normalize talking about it, then maybe you get to a point where you've normalized doing it a bit, which I think is a fear with it. You know, that room was crazy. It was like, we wanted to interview her and she was like, oh, well, we can do it in this back room. It's like, oh, great. It's a back room with like no windows, nothing. It was really weird. But then it's like, oh, actually, this is like going inside their their psyche almost. You've got all this paraphernalia over the place, this big missile costume. It's like, actually, this is, this is kind of sums up what they're all about, really. I want to come to the reason we are chatting today, which is your new film, Warped by War, Inside Putin's Russia. Just tell me first why you wanted to make the film, given the current state of the war between Russia and Ukraine and the context around the population's opinion on war for and against in the country. We wanted to make the film because I was in a unique position of having accreditation in Russia that was still active, which is, you know, kind of tricky thing to acquire now, like it's very unlikely to be issued. So I had this ability to go in Russia and report. Obviously, there's a lot of potential risk in doing so. But, you know, we felt that we could, if we're choosing the right stories, if we're operating in the right way, we could go in there and use this sort of access point to talk about the Russian side of this conflict. Because, you know, obviously, Ukraine is very well covered as as it should be. And, you know, the Ukrainians are, are accommodating when it comes to most international journalists wanting to cover the war there, but Russia isn't isn't at all. So it was our desire to basically map and show the changes that are happening in Russia and what this war is actually doing to Russia as a country, which, you know, I think that, you know, there's not a great deal of films out there that are doing that. And, you know, that was very hard because a lot of people don't want to speak to a foreign journalist. A lot of people are scared in their own ways. A lot of people want to just ignore that this war is happening. So that was our goal. We wanted to do something that was a bit longer because Partly and that was the difficulty of access because it was very hard to get people locked in and to do stuff. So we wanted to use the time to try and get some interesting access, find some characters who were prepared to speak to us and give us a, a fair bit of time. And in terms of just, you know, I mean, you mentioned sort of those opposing and those sort of supporting the war. We kind of wanted to get a sense of like, take the temperature on what exactly that is, like who does support it, who does oppose it. And there's not necessarily a clear answer because I think it's very hard to discern that. And I think it's also a very changeable space in Russia. And, you know, it's very debatable what the support levels are. I mean, you know, a lot of polling places it, you know, sort of 60, 70 percent support, which I would think is probably relatively accurate. Normally that's broken down with sort of strong support and less strong support. But I would say some of that support is actually quite fragile, I think. 
you know, you're in a context where there isn't really much other information going to Russians. Propaganda is really sort of in overdrive and very prominent. So I don't think there is much space for alternative views. And, and you know, we're at a stage in Russia where there are no alternative political options or leadership or oppositional figures left. So there's kind of a vacuum for actually having ideas expressed in a free way where someone's doubts or concerns about this conflict can be shared with someone else and can develop into anything more than just a doubt. But I think, you know, if the material conditions for Russians does get worse, I do think this illusion will be more and more shattered because, yeah, we meet a lot of Russians and a lot of people will pay lip service to the war. But, you know, there's people like Nod who've got their own like (laughs) take on things who would probably be quite true believers in war being a good thing. Although also wrapped up with lots of other idiosyncratic and odd beliefs. But like for most Russians, they might be vaguely supportive or say they're vaguely supportive of it, but they are not enthusiastic supporters. I think that's the thing. Like it's a kind of shallow support for the war in most people. Most people, like I say, I think there's probably about 20% of people who would be kind of hardcore true believers. So we tried to sort of show that kind of landscape there a bit in the film as well. Last year, a Wall Street Journal journalist called Evan Gershevich was detained by the Russian state under false claims of espionage. Mm. Now, previously, as you said to me off air, Western journalists avoided being suppressed despite Russian-based ones being subjected to this. How did Evan's imprisonment affect the way that you produced the film, safety checks you put in place, and anything else in between? Yeah, I mean, that was a big one for us, really, because, yeah, like, like you say, I mean, he was the first... Western reporter, I think, arrested since like 1986, since before communism fell. Another American, uh, Danilov, I think was his name. So, you know, that was the last reporter arrested. After that, there was a sort of belief among sort of the foreign press corps in in Russia, or or maybe (laughs) a false sense of security that it was like, okay, yes, the worst that will happen to us is we'll be fined. And then after that, we will be deported, which has happened to foreign journalists, I, I think, like Sarah Rainsford, I think she, she deported. I think she was, she was, a, maybe she left before she was deported, but that was basically what they seemed they wanted to do to her. Like they wanted to guess, you know, chuck you out of the country. You know, there's various sort of administrative infractions. Like if you get a couple of them, you would most likely have been deported. You know, that could be stuff like you get picked up at a protest, which, you know, happened to reporters sometimes, I guess, be hoovered up in a van and get fined. Or if you'd accidentally gone into the border zone, so foreigners aren't allowed in a certain distance of the border, you know, if you went in there like and didn't realize say that could also get your fine and you got like two or three of those you'd probably be deported from the country so that was kind of the status quo evan's arrest like changed all of that it sort of made you realize well it made all the foreign journalists realize that no you aren't a safe class like russia is prepared to go there now it is prepared to take people as potential like i guess kidnap people on some level i mean that's what i would perceive the motivation for taking evan is it's having someone who can be traded at a later date it's having someone who's a point of leverage i mean it's sort of state sanctioned kidnapping really you know under the sort of false crime of of espionage what evan was doing was not really different from what a lot of us were doing out there in terms of the risks he was taking but you know technically we're ministry of foreign affairs accredited journalists who have permission to ask questions and do journalism russia like okay that's the official kind of statement the reality is a bit more nuanced than that but largely that was meant to give you some protection like before Evan was arrested I'd been detained a couple of times you know and generally you show your accreditation they might take you to the station they might make some calls but you will get released that's what would happen but not with Evan that changed and that also changed our working like some the film was shot before his arrest and after his arrest I mean his arrest basically 
killed one of the deployments we were going on. It made us rethink everything we were doing and the way we were going to go about it. And we basically really reduced our footprint. We reduced the way we worked. We basically worked in such a way where we would only go to events and things where we had official sort of permission or we would do it in like metropolitan areas like Moscow, St. Petersburg, where it was a lot more safer to operate and we guess really restricted what we did. It was a big impact and it and it made it more sort of stressful and, and, and tough to work there really. And mm. it probably increased one's paranoia a bit working there too. Mm. As the war has dragged into its second year, we've seen a forced draft or conscription in Russia and you filmed in a Moscow theatre where 100 soldiers were being forcibly drafted every day, including one young man you focused on called Oleg. Now, there were clearly some men there who didn't agree with the war but couldn't refuse to fight. And as you say in the film, many soldiers were sent to the front with no training whatsoever. Did you get the sense filming there that these men were being sent as literal cannon fodder for some very defiant Ukrainian soldiers. Yeah, I mean it's it, it's tricky. I mean, I mean, and, and Oleg is is one of the characters we we sort of catch up with his father later in the film. And I mean, in his case, he 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 was like an engineer by training, so I think he's in some you know more like technical position. He's not on the front lines. I don't know specifically what he's doing, but he's not cannon fodder in the same way. But I, I mean, with those other young men. Who knows? I, I would expect probably a good proportion of them are probably killed or wounded. I mean, certainly some of them. It's hard to know. I mean, I think the thing, the Russian military is obviously quite large. A lot of people have done national service and are potentially uh, liable for conscription. You know, there's a national service still in the country. So most young men will go serve in the military. So that means there's a lot of people in the population with military experience. And, you know, it's hard to know what the experiences are of Russian soldiers at the front. I mean, I think they're probably can vary wildly. Like I'm sure some units are better provisioned than others. I'm sure there are some reasonable field commanders and more decent people there who are like trying to run things properly. And then I'm sure, you know, as we also have a, a character in our film who is a soldier who served and is telling us about the experiences there, you know, drunk soldiers, people being used, you know, people hiding, people cowering, terrible commanders, like he explains that. You can see in the approach that Russia has used on, you know, Bakhmut and where they have just been like throwing soldiers at it and Adivka, they're doing sort of similar things again. It's like their approach is to not have much respect or value for the individual soldiers' lives. And, and that is something which comes through in a lot of speaking to Russians. I mean, they've, they've sort of lionised World War II, the Great Patriotic War, but you know, millions and millions and millions of Russians died in that war. And actually, back in the the film with uh, Nationalism or Nothing, um, the lady in the back room with the nuke. The other thing she said to us was, I don't know if we made it in the cut in the end, but it was, "What kind of makes Russia special is our ability to basically suffer." Is what she said to, her. and you get that a lot with Russians. It's part of their mythology. It's like you can keep killing us, and we will keep going. So they've kind of mythologized that loss of life. But I think the difference now to World War II is the Germans had pushed into, into Russia. You know, they were around Moscow, St. Petersburg, you know. Uh, they almost took Moscow. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And also, like, you go back to, you know, Napoleon's march where he did take Moscow and the Russians burnt Moscow and, and withdrew. And they withdrew into Russia and used Russia to sort of tire out their enemy. And, you know, in both of those situations, Russian land was genuinely under threat. Troops were in Russia. So I think that's a very motivating factor. But I think today, and I think a lot of soldiers will and probably do not see entirely the logic of what they're doing. Like you're told you're protecting Russian speakers. You're told, you know, these are Nazis. And I think 
you know, these messages are out there and some people believe them or believe them to a degree. But I also think there's a degree to which Russians know them to be a bit hollow and they're not the same because there isn't Ukrainians around the outskirts of Moscow. It's not got that existential threat that those previous conflicts did. So I, I don't know. It's interesting, this bulk of soldiers who've gone out there, some which will die, but some which will come back with injuries, sort of PTSD, come back with, you know, a real disillusionment. And I think that's storing up a problem for Russia in the future because, you know, you had the same thing from Russia's war in Afghanistan, which lasted a decade. But I think the death toll was maybe like 10,000. There's quite a lot of people, but it's nothing compared to what's probably already numbers that have died in Ukraine. Something like 250,000, something ridiculous. Yeah, isn't it? yeah I mean, it's hard to know yeah. exactly. I think, yeah, 300,000 maybe is killed and wounded is what in the US said in the summer. But that's a lot. And that will have an impact on society. Maybe not today, but at some point, it's a stored up problem for Russia, I think. Before I focus on some of the stories of the parents of Russian soldiers that you spoke to, the other main focus of the film is on an anti-government protester and poet called Artyom Karmardin. Since the war began, 20,000 Russians have been detained for anti-war protests, including Artyom. So just tell me about his story and his wife, Alexandra. So yeah, I mean, they're kind of the backbone of the film. And I think both very brave individuals. And we just wanted to basically show the sort of death of Russian civil society. It's been a slow death. We're talking sort of 20 years. Even the early days of Putin in power, it was very clear this was going to be an autocratic regime. And that's just been something that's got worse kind of as he's got in power. Every term he served, things have got worse for free expression. So I think what they represent is they represent the kind of end of that. There are some people who are still in Russia and also they're relatively low level. They're not like Navalny figures. They, they guess people who disagreed with the war. And they went and, and Artyom went to um, Mayakovsky Square, which is a, a square in Moscow, famous for uh, Mayakovsky's a poet. And it was known as a place where even in the, the 50s, 60s, dissidents would go and read poetry. So they would guess like in this tradition of sort of Russian descent, they went there. And they read some poems that were against the draft, like the military mobilization, the forced conscription. And there was probably not many people there, 20, you know, not many people, most of the people poets and then the poets making up the audience. But like they were basically sort of shopped to the security services person filmed them, who they believe is probably sort of a pro-government agitator. And Artyom and a number of the other people in attendance were arrested. In Artyom's case, it was a very violent raid. They didn't have their normal sort of name tags and stuff. They raided his flat, put everyone on the ground, forced them to make apologies, you know, hit and them. They raped him with a metal bar, to be and honest. And then raped yeah. him with a metal bar. Yeah. I mean, that, that's what Alexandra says happens to him, a bar from like a barbell. And yeah. she was also in the other room while this was happening. And they showed pictures to her of like him being beaten up. So even by Russian standards, it was a very violent attack. And this is just for a poem. And as poems gone, this is not a particularly strong poem. It, it was kind of like, fuck Nova Russia, like sort of the new Russia, this sort of idea and like glory to Kiev, basically. It was kind of like pro-Ukrainian and just sort of saying, fuck this. Yeah, it's Slava Ukraini, I think he says at one point. Maybe yeah, yeah. Like that. Yeah. yeah I, and, but I mean, he doesn't like directly sort of insult Putin. It, it's like a bit more of a sort of nuanced poem where he sort of, it's too like a, a, a Russian conscript, like sort of telling him, to sort of kill him almost, you know, I mean, it's a poem, it's kind of artistic and it, and it's nuanced and it's a bit, you know, in, it can be interpreted, but yeah. And this is just a poem and that's it, some words. And this very violent raid happens. And 
And I think this is part of the new status quo in Russia. Like not every incident of dissent will be met with that. But the fact is it could be. And I think that's the sort of message. And I'll leave it for the film. But basically, he gets in a situation where he, you know, he's facing a, a decade in prison for this. And, you know, the film sort of follows mainly Alexandra because Artem is in prison for the whole time we're filming. But his partner, who also sees herself as an activist, is talking about the impact this has had and trying to sort of stay true to herself. And she's also like, well, you know, I, I love my country. I'm a Russian and I, lo- and I like living here. Like, it's horrible what's happened to my country. But she's, you know, a lot of Russians have left and she's sort of one of the people who said that's not going to be her. We're not putting a person on film who's like being overtly oppositional because also that, w- that would potentially put her at risk. And that's not what she was saying to us. But I guess seeing her story, you understand how she is just resisting by just trying to be normal and just by By existing yeah by existing exactly and you know they're kind of the backbone of the film and i think they they show a lot about where russian society is now like like how it is being completely sort of hollowed out you know you cannot be a free person you cannot express ideas other than a very narrow format which is ascribed by the kremlin by the security services but like i said earlier i also think there is this big fear of guest autonomous movements now like even the pro-war stuff the events i've been to that are pro-war they are all kind of like astroturf events like the people turned up are state employees they're bussed in the events are made for television so on tv they will have shots of like particular zealous supporters maybe some people are plants they will pump up the sound of cheers and stuff like everything is fictitious like even pro-putin events they're kind of staged i think there's such a fear of like actual autonomy now and there isn't autonomy people are just getting on with their lives quietly and you know i think a lot of russians have buried their head in the sand and they do not want to engage in society and then there's this sort of fiction being created on tv it's like made for tv but it's not none of it is real basically there's a couple of really heartbreaking moments in the film there's one where alexandra's looking at some of his arts and she says i feel endless pain and there's another where she reads one of Artyom's letters to her and she says, it's hard for me to fall asleep, even if my thoughts are positive. How did you feel videoing those and shooting those? Yeah, I mean, I mean it was very tough with Alexandra because, I mean, you're, you're, you're speaking to someone with a lot of trauma, like, and, you know, she was really suffering and trying to hold it together. But, I mean, at the same time, it's important as well. And I think it was very, you know, that's to show on the on the very granular personal level the impact of this and also to show you the complete kind of barbarity and uncaring nature of the Russian state. I mean, all, all states can be like that, crushing the desires and the beliefs of, of individuals. But I think you just realise what a sort of juggernaut the Russian state is and what it's doing to people. Like she's one example of that. It's the same mentality that has allowed this sort of illegal war to happen in Ukraine. It's the same mentality that's sending all these men to their deaths. But she's a bit of a beacon because she is someone. And and I, and every time I met a Russian who had who was like prepared not to go with the flow entirely, was always like like a, a bit of hope and a bit of a breath of fresh air because there are so many Russians. And I think you get that sense in the conscription center, Oleg, who's sort of kind of unconvincingly, or not unconvincingly, but he's like, well, you know, someone else has made this decision. It's not for me to say. And you get a lot of that in Russia. It's like, it's not for me to say some higher power has made the choice. And there's a real apathy and like Putin's 20 years in power have bred apathy where like a lot of Russians are just kind of half asleep and a bit like, yeah, well, I assume the right people have made a decision about this. The powers that be, it's quite a deference society, particularly when it comes mm. to people who are in 
less economically powerful. I mean, I, it kind of makes me, you know, I think people say that about Britain as well. And I think certainly historically that was more the case. Like our betters are out there and they know what's right for us. And there's a sense of that with a lot of Russians that even if they're not entirely happy, they're like, well, Putin's a good man or I trust his decision. I think, you know, he's been in power for so long. Like who else would be in charge? Like he knows what he's doing. Like there's a there's a weird abdication of, of responsibility. And people like Alexandra, I think, are kind of an antidote for that. And, you know, she's one of many and they're not necessarily protesting on the streets. And I understand that because like at this stage, like, that gets you in prison. It doesn't necessarily achieve anything, but those people do exist in Russia and it, and it comes from like surprising sources sometimes. Like I had a very honest conversation with a woman whose husband was a Wagner fighter. He was a very strange Jesus. situation, but he, he was a convicted murderer who'd been recruited out of prison to go and fight for Wagner. But I mean, she was interestingly for, for having married a convicted murderer who she'd married while he was in prison after he'd been convicted. She didn't even know him Holy shit. So she was kind of like a, uh, uh, yeah. She went eyes open. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Which is great. Also, he was he killed like multiple people in an attack with his father. A very extreme story. Oh, so but, a serial uh, killer. <laughs> I don't, yeah, I don't know. Certainly multiple killers. Yeah, I, I like more, more than three. Three or more is a serial. Yeah, so. I don't. I don't know if it was quite serial, but the home invasion, horrible thing. But she'd marry this man. It's like this kind of crazy story. But then she was like surprisingly. Yeah, like this war's wrong. She was like really outspoken saying, I don't believe in this war. I think it's bad. I think the country's being led in a terrible direction. It was just, but it was a very Russian experience in terms of like this kind of crazy story. And then also, but then also like someone was like, oh yeah, I, I, like, I really agree with you on like this other stuff. And it's funny how this one thing I kind of don't quite understand, but then you actually got sort of opinions and beliefs that are kind of prepared to cut through all this bullshit that kind of exists in Russian society. And that's the thing you do keep and there are lots of Russians like that who are like no I don't stand for this and I don't believe it and that might be in a very quiet personal way but they exist and I, I'm not trying to glamorize or say you know loads of Russians are oppositional because the majority are sitting on their hands but those people do also exist and I think Alexandra Artyom are an example of that and and guess how outweighed their position is when in comparison to the the Russian state. You know, like many things, you know, football clubs and democracies, the, the death of anything is apathy. But there you go. Yeah. You interview the mother of a dead Russian soldier called Alexei and his mother, Zineda, tells you that he stated once, one day, mother, I will grow up and buy a tram and I will drive my sister to kindergarten. This really sort of beautiful line. And I think this quote captures the human cost of war on both sides. And for Zineda, this was her son, by all means, a, a good man who was conscripted and sent to die for essentially nothing. Was this humanization of Russians the overall message that you wanted to convey through the film? Uh, I mean, partly. I mean, I mean, the thing is, it's a tricky one with that because Zaneda is kind of half eyes open. She's upset that her son is dead and she knows something isn't quite right. But also, and, and maybe it's partly the the fear of talking to us, but she doesn't directly condemn the war. She doesn't necessarily think it was a bad thing. She goes, he went to serve his country and was treated badly. And she's obviously upset he died. So she's still very much in this Russian mindset. But like, you know, as a storyteller, we're also there to kind of find the relatable aspect of someone. And I think that's the thing. Like, like I can still empathize with someone losing their son. And she, to me, seems like someone on the beginning of a journey where maybe she will start to question things more. Mm. At the moment, there's more mothers protests that are gaining a bit more momentum again, or mothers and girlfriends and wives of um, conscripted soldiers. I think there's a journey there for a lot of Russians. And I, and I think on some level, like we have tried to, in the film, provoke some empathy in the viewer. That's not trying to excuse away what they're doing, but I think empathy is an important element in trying to understand what their motivations are. 
So I think like moments like that, particularly you are trying to empathize with them while not necessarily adopting their viewpoint. But also, I mean, the, the issue with Russia and the issue with a lot of the conversations we had with people, you know, like some Ukrainians have seen this film and it's obviously a difficult thing there because a lot of Ukrainians are like, well, I don't actually give a fuck about what Russians think of anything. Like these. Well, that was my next question. <laughs> I, I, don't, I don't care what they think. And I mean, and I've had a couple of Ukrainians, like particularly one that recently came to a screening and, and I'd spoken to her before. She's a friend of a friend and she was like, I don't care. But she did come in the end. And like, at the end, she's like, no, that was okay. She was like, the film's okay in terms of like not like sort of excusing away of Russian crimes. And, I, and that was a difficult thing. But then also the other thing of talking to all these Russians is, you know, we could have gone to the Zenaida. Well, why don't you condemn the war? What do you think your son died for? We could have been quite combative with her. I think a lot of those conversations don't get anywhere in Russia because it's like my colleague, co-filmmaker Veronica in, in our Q&A said a really good point, which I thought was, oh, that, that's a really smart way of putting it. She was like, talking to these people is like talking to conspiracy theorists. And to get anything out of it, you can obviously go in and be combative with them. But you're not. That'll make them dig in deeper. Yeah, yeah. you're just gonna. Yeah, you're going into the rabbit hole with them. I mean, and you see that if you if you see someone a COVID conspiracy or whatever, it's like, well, have you seen this report that talks? But they will just trump you with like weird little niche details, which might even be lies or facts. They will just throw stuff at you. So on some level, we wanted to have conversations that circumvented getting into that. And in parts of the film, that has meant there's like more voiceover and more context. But we tried to do that to go. Well, this is what these people believe. And, you know, we speak to a propagandist in the film. We speak to people who maybe people would argue about why are we giving these people platforms? But we wanted to to show the sort of ideological tapestry and ecosystem in, in Russian society now. And these people are a, a part of it. And to speak to them in an honest way where you kind of understand their motivations, that wasn't always a question of like challenging them on everything they believe because you couldn't speak to them in any meaningful way if you challenged, guess, the framing of the conversation. Like mm-hmm. even when I speak to the father of a of a conscript, I go, you know, the question I ask him is, do you feel that Russians, other Russians, like, acknowledge or understand the sacrifice you're making? You know, in part, am I saying that I think what his son's doing a sacrifice? I mean, on some level I am, because I'm saying, I'm going, well, this is someone who has told me he's a patriot. He largely believes that his country, even if he's not entirely sold on the war, he thinks that, you know, my country's not a bad country. So I'm trying to talk to someone in a way where, I might understand emotionally where they're coming from, but that maybe on some level does mean you step into a sort of trying to empathize with them. But I'm trying to do that. Or we tried to do that in the film in a way where we weren't taking on their point of view. And we also, you know, the film starts with sort of showing destruction in Ukraine in the, in the intro. Like, like, you know, the context is the brutal full-scale invasion of Ukraine. That's not going away. But that doesn't mean that what's going on in Russia isn't interesting and important. And I think for international viewers... I mean, personally, I think understanding Russia properly means that your only logical conclusion should be that Ukraine needs more support. That's my belief, because and I think a lot of people, you know, you find them on the left and the right commentators who are like, oh, well, we shouldn't really be supporting Ukraine. You know, Russia was provoked by NATO, blah, blah, blah. It's like, no, I think if you look inside the ideology and you understand Russia, you see that NATO maybe hasn't made every perfect decision in regards to Russia, obviously. But it's far more this war is about Putin's own position in Russian society, his own position in Russian history. Yeah. How and his belief on Ukraine and the Ukrainian people itself. Like he yeah, doesn't it, believe they it, exist. Like, right, they believe it, it, he believes they're Russians. <laughs> no, exactly. Like, like like that's an ideological belief, and it's shared by mm. a lot of Russians as well. It's shared by people like the, the National Liberation Movement. They have an imperialist mindset. 
And that exists in Russia. And let's be very clear. Let's go back to, to Maidan. Like that didn't happen because of NATO. There was no appetite in Ukraine to join NATO. I think polling would have said like 15% of Ukrainians want to join NATO. They wanted an agreement with the EU, which would have led to more prosperity in the country. That's why this yep. initial war in 2014 happened. It wasn't because of NATO. It's because of Putin's ambitions. And I think understanding Russia, going to Russia, seeing what they think and the belief system, I think you should only come away with a stronger idea that this is a country where, you know, there isn't an appeasement, that you can't, like, make a compromise with them that's going to make us safer in the long run. And I, and I think, Russians aren't known for compromise. No, no, exactly. <laughs> and, and, the, and also, Putin has never backed down. Weakness only makes it worse. I mean, you know, we had Crimea, we had these invasions. He still had the World Cup in 2018 after he'd, like, basically yep. invaded a part of Europe and taken it as his own after he'd shot MH17 out the sky after he'd poisoned people on the streets of London, after he'd cyber-attacked neighbouring states because they moved statues of Lenin. The one person provoking people was Putin, and he was rewarded with the Nord Stream Pipeline, the Nord Stream Pipeline 2 that was being built. It's like our mistake was being the naivety of assuming that this autocrat with clear ideological aspirations, which he'd written down and expressed multiple times. Medvedev has said it. Ukrainianism is a disease that needs to be wiped out. <laughs> no, ex exactly. Like, 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 I don't know why some people go through the mental gymnastics of trying to pretend that these people do not believe what they say. That's it. And I think that's partly what the film is. It's like, this is what Russians believe. Not all Russians, there's people who oppose it, but this is the ideological soup and the nationalism and the sort of like horror and brutality that they're swimming in and this mm. sort of petri dish of their society. And like, you know, Arkady Ostrovsky, one of our contributors who himself is Russian, is saying, look, violence breeds violence. And that's what Russian society is. It's getting more and more violent. Yeah, it's spiraling into a darker place. And I mean, that's the other thing. Mm. I think anyone who, who's in any doubt about what they should think about the Ukraine-Russia war, you should listen to two groups of people, Ukrainians. And the second group is you should listen to Russians, people who've had the balls to oppose Putin in whatever way. Listen to what they say about the war. And I think you can't go wrong with, with taking on their opinion basically. Because even people who go, oh, you know, Putin's obviously a bad person, but I'm not sure about Ukraine. It's like, well, talk to a Russian who thinks Putin's a, a bad deal, because they will tell you a, a far more often stronger message of support for Ukraine than you might expect. And I think they're people mm. to listen to. And before we finish, make some conscious of time, like you said, you've had Ukrainians who've watched the film, and mm. there may be others who don't watch it or watch it. And having seen the massacres at Bucha, the horrors of Ukrainian POWs being castrated, raped, executed by invading Russian soldiers. I spoke to Aram Shabanian about this and gone in quite depth about the genocide that is basically yeah. being attempted on Ukrainians. This is without standing the civilians being indiscriminately bombed massacred on a daily basis mm. you know like you said that person you spoke to is ukrainian you thought just good riddance when you probably have, have mm. spoken to a lot of you know mothers of russian dead soldiers how long do you think this war has to go on before a more russians wake up especially probably mothers of dead sons or dead husbands and where do you see this going because we're in a very precarious state right now where if trump gets in is he going to give more aid to Ukraine? I don't know. Rishi Sunak, the current UK Prime Minister, is giving more aid to Ukraine. I imagine that would probably happen if Labour got it or whether he got re-elected. Where do you see this going in the next year? It's, I, mean, I mean, it's hard to predict, but we've just seen Wagner Group basically be destroyed in essence. No, I mean, it's, it's a very worrying situation. I mean, I think Trump, he's, he's obviously very unpredictable, but I think it could spell very bad news for Ukrainian support. That would also mean that Europe has to step up. You also see with like... Yep. Viktor Orban, 
like being the bulwark to the EU giving more aid to Ukraine. But I mean... That's being circumvented, right? I'm pretty yeah, sure that they, he's, they, people are trying to work out around... Yeah, they, they're getting around it, but it's not, it's not good and it's worrying. And also like the level of aid that America gives is, is vast, you know, and it, it sort of dwarfed sort of British and, and, and any EU contributions. So it's a big gap to fill. And then there's just the pure, you know, there's not enough munition factories. There's enough capacity. It's like, to be serious about supporting Ukraine, I think there needs to be some commitment that EU needs to have new manufacturing facilities for weaponry. I mean, I think even like barrel replacement, because, you know, guns, if they get fired a lot, they warp and they need the barrels. It's like these things need to be in place if we're going to properly support Ukraine. So I think it's very worrying about Trump's election. I mean, I think the, the thing is, we've also got the Russian presidential elections coming up as well. Um, elections in air quotes. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. You know, the masquerade ball of the Russian elections. I think on some level, Putin wants to keep a uh, a stable playing field in, until that's done. And on some level, whatever result comes through will be tried to be spun as like a, a rubber stamp from the Russian people for not only Putin, but also the war he's committed them to. So I think it could be the long haul. I'm not, you know, it could be a grinding war like Russia and the USSR, were, you know, as it, as it collapsed, you know, you look at Nagorno-Karabakh, you look at Transnistria, Abkhazia, all these little breakaway regions which have a Russian hand in them. They're little meat hooks in neighboring nations where they can waggle and exert control. The cold conflict isn't bad for Putin, especially, you know, he's changed the constitution to be in office till 2036 and when he's well into his 80s. And he obviously has no intention of stepping down. I think, you know, the cold conflict can serve him. You know, the fact this is a state of war. We've got a threat on our border always. Like, a, you know, he can essentially weaponize that. I also think fundamentally the economic conditions in Russia have got worse. A lot of them in Europe have got worse. But it's not terrible there yet. The soldiers... He stabilized the economy, hasn't he, after all the sanctions, which is, yeah, which is probably what's been, kept him in power. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, they've been very good at controlling, you know, rubles and making sure, you know, they're still selling, you know, a lot of the economy is based on oil and gas. They're still selling it to India, China. I mean, not to the same degree, but they have managed to reorientate their economy. And, you know, sanctions are definitely being circumvented in loads of ways. I mean, also like, you know, there used to be lots of German cars on the streets and European cars on the streets of Moscow, all the car hire schemes and stuff. There's a lot of car hire schemes in Russia, in Moscow, you know, German cars, but you know, they've all been replaced by Chinese cars now or Russian branded cars, which I guess Chinese cars, but they're kind of, maybe someone puts a logo on them in a Russian factory. But I mean, their reliance on China, I think is also a problem for Russia though in the long run, because historically Russia-China relations are not going to, you know, have never been the easiest. And also they talk about it and Putin sort of frames it as a relationship of partners, but you know, China's economy is huge. Russia is, I don't know, about Spain's size. 150 million people, but it's not a big economy. It's not a superpower. China's the number two economy. And Russia and America's economies are up there. Like, like I think Germany, Japan are like there. It's like they're huge economies. And, I, and any relationship with Russia is going to be asymmetric. And, you know, China has its own interests. So I do think this war will become financially more difficult for the Russians. But I think more could be done to sort of try and circumvent sanctions. But at the moment, if you're a Russian soldier, you get $2,500 a month, I think is the basic pay if you sign up, which to a lot of Russians is a lot. Is lots. It's maybe 10 times the average wage in some poor places. You know, like 25%, 20% of Russia doesn't have indoor toilets still. Like, There's lots of very poor Russians, not in Moscow and St. Petersburg, but across the country 
who will take that money and they're relatively happy with it. And, you know, not all the time there are disgruntled families, but also if their son or person dies, there are payments coming out, like, again, large sums of money for people in the poor Russian regions who don't expect much from life anyway sometimes. So while that happens, you're going to keep the lid on a lot of this discontent. If you're not able to keep those payments up, if the wage for the soldiers does drop, that will become more and more difficult. And also, ultimately, and it's unfortunately that Ukraine is having to be used as, as this kind of anvil on which to sort of wear down the Russian war machine. But like the more Ukraine is funded, the more that will degrade Russia, the more that will put a strain. And it would, because this is a lot of people, young men particularly, who have died or being like screwed up by this war. And that will also have an impact. It's also interesting, like, I think there's increase in sort of migration to Russia as well, even though Russia has a kind of like ethno-nationalistic edge to all its politics, even though a lot of Russians are not ethnic Europeans because it's so vast. But there is certainly a Russian-centric ideology and a sort of anti-immigrant tone, quite a bit of the politics. I kind of feel like it's interesting how this war is probably provoking like more immigration into Russia and changing the demographics of society in an interesting way. I mean, Russia's an aging population. Average age is, is over 40. It's a declining society in terms of population. So it's got lots of issues, which are shared by the European states as well. But like, it's got a lot of issues and, and, and stresses internally, which are only going to get worse as this goes on. And I think if Ukraine's support is maintained as this war goes on, and that will cost Europe. But I ultimately think it's a cost that will in the long run probably be more beneficial for us than than not. Because I, Putin is not going to become more reasonable and rational and a better neighbour if he has a victory in Ukraine. You know, when you're looking at someone who's going to be governing this country into his 80s. While he's tied up in Ukraine, he is less danger. He needs allies. He needs alliances. You know, there are different stakeholders in Russian society, which he needs to keep sweet. As long as we hold firm in Ukraine, I think ultimately he will become weakened. But I mean, you know, like we discussed, there's no guarantee that's necessarily going to happen. Who blinks first, mate? Exactly. Yeah. And, and we have got to hold our nerve, I think, like a, as sort of Europe and the West, like it, we're in a very precarious situation. You know, we're in a dangerous era, I think. And I don't think you can bury your head in the sand about this. And that's not about being belligerent or warmongering, but it is about being prepared and being firm and having red lines and staying by them basically before we reflect i want to quickly talk about industry issues because the main issue that you want to talk about is the work environment and working in places like russia and, and the mental toll it takes on your professional mental health and your personal mental health and you mentioned earlier in the pod about paranoia so mm -hmm. how has this played into working in places like that where it comes to safety checks or avoiding being detained or even worrying about whether your hotel room is bugged yeah, I mean, I mean, it's a tricky one. I mean, there, there's a sense of menace in Russia when you work there, particularly if you just what could potentially happen and what does happen to people like you don't necessarily know when the tables turn on you. So I think, you know, that puts you in a state of kind of heightened readiness. You know, I wasn't like fully living there. So I was kind of in and out working, which on some level was better for me in the sense that I did get a chance to sort of decompress and not fully be in there and, and you could relax. But yeah, I mean, you know, you're crossing the border, you often get questioned, you get stopped, people want to check your documents, like, there's just the fear. Informed on. Like, <laughs> yeah, informed on, people overhearing, people complaining, mm. like, like it, it can happen. You know, one of the times I was detained was because our contributor, the person we'd interviewed, called the police on us and didn't like the cut of our jib, basically, and we got detained because of that. It's like, you know, that sense of paranoia does lead to stress, and then, you know, if you've got a busy shooting schedule, if you're traveling, you know, if you're 
working outside in the Russian cold for four hours. And it's like, you know, there's just lots of stresses and strains from being there, like physical and psychological. And then also, you know, you know, I'm working with Russians and as well, local Russia, a very small team, but, you know, like my translator who I was working with and um, there's the risk and the potential stresses on, on them as well and on the contributors and what you're potentially exposing them to. So there's a lot of things you've got to think about and there's a lot of, uh, yeah, it's kind of tricky to know and when, like, and that's where paranoia comes in because, and you can be paranoid. But then also, like, it's because these things could also all be happening. Like, you could be justified. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you could be being followed. I mean, I largely don't think we were largely not followed. But you know, it's really hard to know. And you know, if your phone's behaving a bit weird, it's like, what is something happening there? You know, like, like in Russia now, like basically all the internet's been kind of closed off, like your Instagrams, your Twitter, all of that. So you've got to like operate with a VPN, and you know that can often make your phone a bit funny. And you need like a good VPN, like not like off the shelf one. Now they're kind of like it's a bit of an arms race with VPNs. So yeah, there's loads of things where you think, oh, sh- should I be worried about that? Or the way someone's looking at you, particularly if you're out filming and doing stuff like you know we shot on very sort of compact DSLR cameras, which allowed us to kind of operate in a way where we could look like tourists or whatever. And I don't particularly stick out in Russia. Like, like plenty of people passing just think I was a Russian guy. So it's like, so there's things like that. But like, you know, if someone was taking an interest in you, if, like particularly if we went somewhere that was more in the regions, you know, like not to speak English, like loudly or just like to keep a low profile and all that. But it takes a toll on you in terms of just, you know, keeping your wits about you. Uh, but, you know, then you're getting sort of frazzled and it can kind of be a bit of a... um that in itself can be a bit of a problem for you if you you know if you're then not operating at your best. But I mean, that was sort of the thing of you know just making sure we had time to decompress, making sure you know I wasn't in the country for too long. That a stint and and also I guess monitoring the very actual risks. You know, like when Evan was arrested, you know, completely changing how we were working and reassessing everything. Like, but you know, and also I mean, for me on a personal level, this kind of if I'm working stress, like my my eyes can twitch or I get like a bit of tinnitus and stuff. So it's just like paying attention to what your own body's saying in terms of like trying to mm. be responsible and responsive to what you might need. So no, it's, mm. it's a tricky one and it's definitely the most complicated place that I've worked. And then at the same time, you're trying to get interesting stuff and you're trying to find characters and you're trying to do all this creative stuff and interesting stuff, which kind of is in attention with like, safety basically and Mm. risk because you know it'd be great to go like oh it'd be great to go to this place or that place but it's like oh no well that's like that city's got massive fsb like buildings or or you know that's too close to ukraine or whatever like numerous things where it's like you know you're you're, you've got this tension between those things and also that can skew your judgment because obviously you know you want to make an interesting film but it's also a balance you don't want to end up being reckless either Let's reflect on your conflict journalism journey, mate. So first of all, what's been your proudest achievement on it so far? I mean, I think I think this film probably is, is probably up there just in so far as like the experience and the effort of working there and just doing something that was large with like very limited resources in a very difficult environment. Like it's been a real sort of professional challenge and really interesting. And I've like learned a lot from it. So I think that I think it probably is, you know, and I mean, that's a nice place to be to feel like the latest thing you're working on is the challenge. And I think that's always been my like approach, like I kind of want to push myself and do something that's a challenge in, in some new way. So, yeah, I mean, I think this this film, I kind of feel has been the zenith at the moment, I guess. And as a final question before we move on, what has this journey taught you about yourself? Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I, I mean, and I think in regards to sort of like mental health and learning who you are, like I think that's a constant journey. I think it has taught me to become better at 
sitting with what I'm feeling and thinking at a time and sort of being aware of it. I think like from my background and my personal experience, like I've always had like a tendency to kind of like white knuckle things and just kind of get on and not try and not ignore what's going on. I guess focus on on a thing. But I think the more like particularly working in these high pressure environments and, and stuff like, okay, you can do that for a bit, but it's going to take a toll. And like, there's sort of a better approach. And I think a lot of my experiences is, you know, trying to work against my kind of natural maybe not necessarily helpful inclinations to do stuff and just be a bit more sort of responsive to what I am thinking and feeling and listening. I think the thing is, and I think that's a journey as you go over life, it's like coming to terms and coming to understand what you as an individual need, particularly when you're in these high stress, hostile environments where you're also trying to operate at a high level and do stuff to a high standard. I think, yeah, like just listening and learning to yourself and and trying to drop my worst habits in terms of, of my instinctual not necessarily helpful responses to things, you know. We've talked all about your journey in conflict journalism, mate. Let's go deeper and talk about your own mental health journey. So I ask all my special guests on this topic this question first. Take me back to early life, teenage years, and looking back, were there any early mental health experiences, if any? Who's the Andy we meet here? My background is, like, my dad used to be in the military, so he used to move a lot, you know, like every two years, change school, change location, basically. As young, I mean, that's kind of interesting, but it's also kind of like quite uprooting in the sense that you don't have a sort of fixed home. That changed when I was 11. Military will part pay for like boarding schools and stuff. So I went to a boarding school when I was 11. So I didn't have to keep moving schools, basically. So I'd have some like stability in my in my education, basically. But, you know, like 11 is quite young to sort of like leave home and sort of be on your own in, a, in, in like a shared bedrooms and school with like other kids. So, yeah, I mean, I mean, I think my youth were probably quite informed by that in different ways. Like on some level, that kind of makes you, I think, sort of self-sufficient. But it probably also means that you're kind of not, you don't have a kind of relaxed place, you know, like schools with uh, other kids and stuff where you're there sort of 24 hours a day. It's probably, you know, it's quite intense in a way and you're quite alone in a way. So I think like that probably informed myself in terms of like, you know, not being maybe the most sort of, open or you know like like I'd probably play my cards a bit close to my chest and stuff and I think a lot of that Mm -hmm. probably comes from that background and you know I think I have like a pretty kind of British upbringing so far as like you know especially my dad being like in the force and stuff like not like you know it's not like a big sort of talking emotional sort of exuberant (laughs) exuberant culture where you know it's not that people don't care about each other but more guess it's uh not having big um conversations about how you feel and your emotions and stuff my partner she's American and it's just you can't I kind of realized just how <laughs> yeah, Stop. if you're going to find someone that's American to talk about that, yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. Where they probably just want to talk about how they're feeling a little, like all the time, and everyone's got a therapist in America. Exactly. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. So it's a bit of a contrast, but yeah. So I'd say, I'd say at that time, I was probably, you know, probably to some degree, like, and and I probably still am, like, someone who who uh, is somewhat reserved, although probably as I've got older, like, less so in, in lots of ways. But yeah, I think I think anyone who, you know, you go to boarding school young, I, I think it does have impacts on you, both sort of negative and positive. I think. And when it comes to your job, obviously, it can be very intense, full on, pressurized in many ways. And it's really important for men to find their release valve, as I call it. Now, that might be talking, that might be something completely different. And it's about what works for you. And especially for conflict journalists, how do you find your release valve, Andy? Yeah, that's a good one. I mean, I think I think of ways like, I mean, I have a lot of good friends who are journalists. And I think that sort of shared experience of people who've been in similar situations, I think, 
it doesn't necessarily that you sort of talk about everything in like an overt way, but I think sharing space and time with them is very helpful where they understand the exact same pressures in a way where you don't need to like necessarily go into detail. So I think that sort of time with people who understand the same situation where you can sort of relax and unwind is important. Like a lot of my colleagues, fortunately, are very good friends of mine. And I think that's that sort of support network is really helpful. I mean, personally, it's also like, I probably would get more like as I've become more sort of mature. I mean, I I know like I and like I talk about white knuckling and stuff. Sometimes I'd get very focused, working very hard on something, and then I, you know I'd, it could lead to me sort of losing my temper or just kind of freaking out a bit or kind of like having a big response to stuff. And I think now, as I've become more experienced with sort of dealing with it, I think a lot of it is it is knowing when you need that little safety valve to break, knowing that you're not alone and unfortunately I've got some very good colleagues and very good friends and had some good bosses as well with people where you can help sort of get people on board and help solve issues with you because I mean again another thing of like being boarding school young and feeling like you have to be kind of autonomous to some degree I mm. think that on the flip side can be quite bad as far as like you you're not necessarily predisposed to like asking people to kind of help with stuff which I think has been a learning curve for me with being in a situation where no, like when you do know you can trust people and stuff and like that it is important to talk to people. I also think for me, like exercise is a big one. You know, our bodies are, you know, there's a psychological, but it's, you know, really linked to the mechanical as well. And I think it's, you know, a bit of an exercise can really just help transform how you're feeling. And like, you know, on deployments and stuff, if you can sort of fit that in, I mean, that's very difficult. But even before deployments or after, just making sure you can work that in, I think has become really important. I mean, you know, also things obviously like diet, all of this stuff, like, you know, like the microbiome and and, and, and just, you know, health in general, I think, you know, as I've got older, I've tried to look after that more because it does have such an impact. And also like, like with journalism, you know, there is a bit of a sort of drinking culture as well. And, you know, I mean, in one way, like part to unwind and relax and stuff, but like, it's also like, and again, with Frisbee, where like you can get a bit carried away with that sometimes. And I think it's just, you know, keeping on that thing as well and, and sort of moderating yourself. And yeah, I think, you know, like balancing it out with things like exercise, balance out with just being more mindful. And I think as, as I've gone on, like I've got better at finding that balance, I guess. You spoke earlier about that traditional British military background and the way that mental health was approached historically. And, and up until, say, 2015 or maybe even 2017 when I started Vent, Stoicism, which is a very noble concept and one which I've taken lots from through authors like Ryan Holiday, was previously kind of warped into this like toxic Stoicism approach, which was like stiff upper lip and told men to just suppress and repress all their emotions in the service of some sort of greater good, mm. right? And that was largely to the detriment of ourselves. And you mentioned that this has kind of leaked into parts of journalism and specifically war reporting and maybe a kind of machismo, maybe. Just unpack that a little bit. Yeah, no, I, I think it's definitely there. I mean, I think it's probably changed a bit more. Like, I think you probably get a bit more diverse faces, but there's still very much a bit of a, a sort of, uh, I don't know, dick swinging kind of like, like <laughs> swashbuckling kind of act. Yeah, willy waving. Exactly, yeah, yeah. I guess kind of trying to be tough, trying to be in there, trying to be in the scene. And to some degree, you know, that is what a lot of conflict reporting is trying to be. And I think it's where it can be sort of toxic. There is a sort of competition element, which also is bad when it comes to risk-taking potentially, where you're trying to look a certain way, be tough. And, And to be honest, the fact is, and I think you've got to be aware of this, is like journalists are rewarded for taking risks. That's the reality. Like, I think you've got to be honest about that. Like, And you know it in when people see like, oh, did you see that package someone did or this and where... 
they're getting shot at or something's happening and it's like that makes the that story, makes the story. Yeah, yeah. invariably it is rewarded by awards invariably there are accolades for the people who do it so i think there is there is a tension there i think we all have the ambition of trying to show what something is really like on camera and that is very visceral storytelling and it is very impactful and it does say something about the reality but it's also it's something where people themselves can have an addiction to like the kind of adrenaline of it and people themselves can lose sight of things and get too attached to that so i don't know yeah there there is a sort of macho culture where i think it, it's you know and i and i think also with newsrooms where like maybe they haven't necessarily always looked after their staff in the way they should as well because there is an attitude of well you know this is what we do you just get on with it but you know there are a lot of stresses and and strains and i think as like vice matured and stuff you know i think we had more conversations and stuff where that would be sort of taken on board and expressed and i think people shouldn't be flippant about it and you know and also when you're working with teams i think it's a tough one because you've got to move at the pace of like kind of the comfort level of everyone involved. And I think that's an important thing as well, just like being mindful of the people with you because it can become a bit of a niche mindset where everyone's doing these things, everyone's taking certain kind of risks. And then, you know, you get to a place which is very abstract and not normal. And you think it is normal because it's been sort of, because everyone around you is just involved in the same pursuit. And, you know, I would say most journalists have a, particularly in the sort of stuff we do, they have a higher risk tolerance than a lot of people would but you've got to also be aware of that and think what's really driving me in any situation to do stuff like with russia you know i'm like well am i just being foolish because i think i i am sort of exceptional it won't happen to me like like what's the real logic behind what i'm thinking of why i think i can go back and work like i think you've got to ask yourself those questions and i think you know yeah sort of machismo sort of attitude can maybe get you into trouble and you know i mean it's something we have talked about in our training and stuff you know there's plenty of journalists who've died for one thing or another yes they were trying to get a great mm. story but it's like it's not really worth you know losing your life or your liberty for in most in most cases so it's like it's just like remembering that and i think decompressing making sure you're not working somewhere too long and making sure there is oversight and there's other people who can give you some like objectivity and you can avoid getting sucked into a mindset where high levels of risk or very dangerous things become the norm or behaving in a way which isn't like appropriate becomes the norm listen to the times have a great podcast about john Cantle, and it's just sort of discussing his you know, the journalist who was doing all the propaganda videos for isis under duress it kind of follows his story but it's it talks about him in the early days sort of working in syria as basically isis is forming and him one of a few journalists there and it's it's, it's very interesting when you think about conflict reporting and, and their perception of risk and it's people are talking quite candidly about how he probably already nearly been kidnapped before and like got away and been shot and guess like his threshold for what was normal had kind of gone up. And the fact that, you know, he'd maybe been kidnapped and got away with his life maybe kind of made him feel that I'll be fine next time, like sort of exceptionalism as well. And I think these are all sort of dangerous chaps that journalists can fall into, not to blame him for him like being captured. I mean, it's it's, a, it's worth listening to this podcast. It's a very interesting like, discussion of sort of his mindset though. But the thing is, you know, it's also like you need a bit of that as a journalist as well, but you just need to make sure you're getting the balance right. And I think that's something you always need to be sort of mindful of, basically. Let's reflect on your mental health journey, mate. So a similar question as before. A, what has this mental health journey taught you about yourself? And B, 
if you could go back and talk to the Andy who was emailing every production company under the sun to land a first job in conflict journalism or journalism generally, the Andy who was maybe having to look over his shoulder in Belarus and definitely in Russia, mm. or the Andy who was trying to figure out his release valve to get some decompression from being in those environments, what would you say to him knowing what you do now? Yeah, I don't know. It's a, it's a tricky one. I mean, I think like my propensity is maybe to like to get overly worked up about stuff sometimes and like to take a beat to like think a bit more to like decompress. I mean, like I mentioned earlier, I think, I think for me it was also like a sort of white knuckling kind of tunnel vision about stuff sometimes, which is, isn't helpful. And there are people you can talk to and there are people who, who know your situation, who you can share these issues with and get some uh, decent advice. Cause I think at times like I've worn myself down to, being quite tired and being quite stressed and being quite volatile and being quite like on edge. And I think that was avoidable. So I think, yeah, I think, I think it would be guessed, you know, that doesn't have to be the sort of status quo. There are better ways of dealing with this and you really aren't alone. And, and, you know, I mean, that's a tricky one because obviously not everyone you can, you can trust and, and like, you do have to be sparing about how you do it. But I think there are people out there and there are people who understand and, I'd just be like, well, I've got to figure this thing out on my own. And it's like, no, well, actually, actually, you don't. There are resources and people who will help you. So I think for all sort of early incarnations, and I mean, that's a lesson I'm, I'm still like learning. I also think like my would be like kind of avoidant to maybe like what a problem was. And it's like, I think sitting with your emotions and not judging yourself for your emotions is going, well, why do I actually feel like that? Why is this generating that response? And like actually taking a beat to sort of interrogate it in a thoughtful way, I think is really useful because I think mine would be like, well, I'm just feeling bad or whatever about this situation or worried about this and that. And I'd just kind of like try and ignore it and hope it'd go away with enough time. But it's like, no, I think sitting with it is far better and just like critically like engaging with it in a way where you're not sort of judging yourself for how you're feeling, which is it. Like I think there's a, particularly for men, I think there's a way in which like we're kind of just ashamed of having emotions full stop like you want the feeling not to be there and you're just like well i'll just kind of ignore it but it's like no it's everything you're going through is generally a signal that you should be listening to like it's saying something and sometimes the reaction your central nervous system is having to something is actually a really important message like it's not happening for no reason it's happening because there is fear or there is actual danger is something you should be aware of yes sometimes it will be an overreaction to a situation these are messages and i think you're sort of taught or not taught necessarily, but like sometimes it becomes the standard just ignore them. But I think it would be no, like they're all important. They're not something to be ashamed of or worried about. You've got to engage with them and try and sort of, you know, you're in a, I don't know, I think the the older you get and the more you know yourself, your body and your mind are constantly sending out signals that, and you need to guess as you get older, hopefully you become a better interpreter of what they're actually trying to say to you. So I think that's it. I don't think I was ever, as I was younger, self-reflective enough but I mean, you know, some of that comes with age. I think particularly when you're younger and operating in the world, it's like you're so overstimulated and you're very self-conscious in a way, which again is natural because you don't necessarily know the answers or haven't sort of carved your way in the world yet. And I think, you know, it's a lot of noise and it's and it's really hard to discern what are the relevant signals. But I think, you know, certainly not avoiding the signals. I think it's engaging with them and not giving yourself a hard time, but just trying to work out what they mean, really. 
We've come to our final topic of conversation, Andy, and it's one I try and have with every special guest if we have time. It is a general natter and quick fire chat about mental health. So firstly, how is your mental health, mate? Yeah, I think I think generally pretty good these days. I think earlier in my career, I've probably been a bit more volatile, a bit more insecure in my position. I feel like these days, though, no, I'm a lot more solid. I think I've, I've built like in routines and structures in my life, which I think are, are helpful and guess sort of keeping me away from feeling melancholic and and just mm. making sure I can be sort of motivated and on my game but you know I think I think that is a constant battle and I think as you age it's it's you know you gain a certain wisdom about yourself and I think I think I think in giving yourself a easier time I think it is also nothing is a bad thing to be feeling it's just like you know sitting with things and things will pass if they're bad and you know there's always things you can do to improve your mental health. And what age were you when you became self-aware of your mental health and you realised that the feelings you were having weren't physical and they were actually in your mind? Yeah, that's a good one. I don't know. I mean, like I said, I think I, think I probably took a bit longer than others because I think I probably I probably didn't confront a lot of, like, like a, a bit of a white knuckler, a bit of a bottler. I think if something would make me uncomfortable, my approach might be just to, like, avoid the thing that did it entirely rather than having a more thoughtful discussion with myself about why that is. So I don't know. I'd probably say, like, Probably my teens, really, I think, but like maybe sort of 13, sort of 14. I think even till like as 18, I think I, I didn't have a particularly sophisticated sense of, of myself, really, or my mental health. I think I was very fixated on thinking that everything that was happening was happening because of external stimulus, because of the world around me. Uh, like, well, why can't that be like that? And why can't, rather than going, well, what you're feeling, your discomfort with this situation or a sense of unfairment or aggrievement or whatever. Like you have control over how you respond to all these external stimuluses. I think even till today, and I think it, I still struggle sometimes where it's like, well, what happens to you doesn't have to make you feel any way in particular. There is a choice and some control over what your response is to some sort of stimulus. And I think that that's a lesson that I've learned and, and only came, you know, and I'm still learning. But I think, say, I certainly probably all through my teens, I think I was I was still not like properly sort of cognizant of how important how powerful that is just as a, as a thought really and can you remember the first conversation you had with someone about your mental health so if so who was it with what did you say and how do you look back on it did it feel like a big moment or a big burden or weight had been lifted or something easy and normal to do to be honest the first time i think was at school we used to have some like sort of forms and stuff where you'd have to fill out how you were feeling, but which was kind That's of very boarding school that <laughs> yeah, it was kind of weird. But then, and in many ways, it, it probably was not a particularly good experience because I remember saying things that like were, were worrying me, and then like there was no real follow up or anything on it. It was just like saying so it kind of like actually probably reinforced an idea that what you were feeling didn't really matter to anyone. So I think like yeah, that was probably my first sign of someone actively saying you know tell us how you're feeling about that. It wasn't a good one though <laughs> no, it probably wasn't a good one now I, I, it's really strange actually i'm just thinking like why did they even ask us to do that it was, if box then, ticking yeah. yeah no one ever came and talked to you about it because because i think also like i mean particularly boarding school like i like i i think i sort of enjoyed it in the end in in ways but like you know it was very hard initially to go somewhere like that and just be in a place with completely new people not with your family and kind of you know at the whims of students who are maybe like older than you or you know you couldn't leave you're there with all these people where you, you have very limited control so I think like in that space like there was some sense of like how how little control that you potentially had in life I think and also what you were feeling maybe didn't necessarily always matter so I think like on some level like which 
it's hard to say, like on some of that, that's maybe a slightly useful message because I think what your feelings like often doesn't matter. I think you can, particularly with your parents, like where sort of caring parents, they kind of do care about what you think and feel. Like, I think one of the harsh realities of the world is you go out and you realize that a lot of people aren't too interested. Now, you know, your parents might think you're like the best thing, but like, or your friends or people, but then actually a lot of the place you're actually out there kind of auditioning and the world is quite kind of harsh and and difficult. But yeah, I mean, I mean, as my first mental health experience, yeah, I, I, I think that was the first time sort of actively thinking about with someone to go, how do you feel about something? Do you want to put it down? But yeah, it probably just felt like it was a bit of a, a vacuum. And maybe that's because it wasn't framed as like, maybe if it had just been framed as like, write this stuff down as a way to kind of guess express yourself and it's not about someone else receiving it it's about you trying to order your thoughts or think about how you feel maybe it would have been a more productive experience but it wasn't it's also it's also like i don't know i mean you know it could be as simple as like write poetry or do so like it could have been a framed as a creative task almost as just a, a way of outletting but but it, i guess it, it guess it wasn't but yeah no i mean mm-hmm. and that's the thing i don't think anyone for a long time particularly said like how are you feeling and I don't, again i think that can be quite like a, a british thing as well like you know, we, we have a culture saying like the word all right, like to people, but it's like, it's a, in a way it's a question, but it's a question that no one expects an answer from, do you know? Like, no. Like, so, and I think that sometimes sums up like a, a bit of our society, but I don't know, a funny thing, British society, and I, I, like, you know, you think of like things like when Princess Diana died and like, I don't know, sometimes it's like a real desire for like British people to be really, or like a football game or something where there's like mm. heightened sort of off the charts sort of emotion about something. But, uh, they're allowed, um, they, aren't they? They're, they're allowed yeah. emotional outlets, aren't they? Well, that's the thing. I, and I think it probably works in parallel that maybe that happens because we have a society which in so many ways is, is a bit repressive on, on a personal, emotional level. But then when there's permission given, it can be like melodramatic sometimes. It's kind of an mm. interesting duality, I think. You spoke earlier in the pod about triggers. So I'm going to ask you now about what positive tools and methods you use to improve your mental health or help you feel better. Which ones have worked and maybe which ones that you've tried but haven't? Yeah, I I mean, for me, like, I need space and time on my own, I think. I think that's the thing. And, and I think exercise has become increasingly more, like, important to me, like, to just build that in and be like, a lot of the time I'd be like, if I'm really busy, like, that would be the thing that suffers. And I'm trying to get to a space where that isn't the thing that suffers. It's like, no that I'm going to make time for because I think it has such a positive impact on all the other things I'm doing. Like, it seems like, well, maybe that's an hour of the day that I can't use for doing something I really need to do. But it's like, that's kind of like a false economy, I think. So I think for me, exercise, I mean, there's things that are not very easy for me to do, which maybe I would, I think should try like, like, I'm not a meditator. I can't. Well, I, can't. I can't, mate. Yeah. yeah I, I could can't. do mindfulness. Like if I'm sitting about somewhere, I can practice like what can I smell? What can I taste? But I can't do the sitting somewhere no. and doing that meditation stuff. And that no, stuff exactly. I'm, I'm completely the same. I mean, I, I think maybe it'd be good to get there. Yeah. I mean, I could probably be more mindful with stuff still like, like taking that moment, but it's like, but also I think that's another thing. Like, like I'm not going to give myself a hard time because that's not something that comes naturally to me. Like, yeah. and I think that's the other thing. It's like, there's too many one size fits all solutions for people like this. 100%. Right. This is the solution. And also like, I think social media makes it worse because you know, like reels or Instagram, whatever TikToks is like, well, someone's got like 20 seconds to say something. It's like, well, this is the one thing that will change your life. It's like, well, not really. Like, like, so you've got to find a formula that works for you. And I don't know. Yeah. Like exercise for me also like ring fencing time. Like I can be quite bad for like, well, I've got loads of stuff to do. I guess, I guess you power through and do this and this. And it's like, well, no, like I've got to prioritize stuff properly and like 
actually give myself some time to not worry about things. So it's like it's just like ring fencing time for myself and and making sure like I'm mindful of not being driven by like kind of negative emotion as your motivating factor because it can be then be like well I'm doing this because of this feeling but that's not necessarily a productive feeling let's unpack it let's break it down let's go back to the start but yeah I don't know yeah I mean a diet something I I, I want to work on I'm I'm bad at but I know has a massive impact I I think we will also in maybe 10 20 years time I, I really think there will be a a reckoning about like the level of sort of ultra processed food and I think the unknown impact that has on our microbiome but also our mental health I mean I think the research on the microbiome is so fascinating where someone can look at the composition of someone's gut bacteria and they can tell a good degree of certainty if that person's depressed it's like that Mm. is fascinating it is a second brain like what we put into ourselves is like incredibly important and i think our high processed diets are, are really having a problem there i also i mean i also think like i see like sort of huel and some of these things advertised like, pisses me off man yeah like that is ultra processed like you know that's having an impact you look at the spike of like youth cancers as well and stuff it's like all of this i think is heavily linked to diet and i think diet and mental health and it's something i always struggle with because I'm, I'm a bad one for junk food and particularly if you're on shoots if you're doing stuff it's very easy just to be like mm. well I'll get the thing that's easy. I've had a hard, long day where I'm still working into the evening. My little treat is like, I'll get something really like calorific, sweet, you know, packed with aspartame or whatever. And I think that's something which I try to to keep a handle on and do more home cooking as well. And just things where like you sort of slow down the whole whole experience. And, and that's something I've not ever really um, managed to conquer. Like, I, you know, I think... I'm someone who's very predisposed to like eat my emotions if I'm stressed. Or, so or, yeah. I'm, or a former fat, I'm a former fat boy, so I'm yeah. Exactly. Exactly. I mean, I'm a I'm always on the sort of cusp. I'm I'm a, well, not sixteen stone anymore, but I'm always a bit of a fluctuator up and down to you know here and there. But like you know, the problem for me is like if I'm if I'm unhappy or like stressed, I, I'll eat comfort then, food, man. Yeah, exactly comfort. Yeah. But then also, like, if I'm happy, I also like to. <laughs> but it says like I'm kind of like caught on both sides of it. But yeah, I think I think the one thing I, I'd love to be able to work on my diet more and have like you know a better diet. It's also it's also routine is a is a real killer for that. You know, if you're eating at the same, and the thing is. It's so twin with boredom as well, though. Like, if you can, mm, eat at the same time, I'm a grazer. I'm a grazer. Boredom exactly. grazer. I hate it. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's it's just tricky to to nail down the routine, but that's something I'd like to kind of improve as well. I'm conscious of time, so I've got four very quick questions left. The first one is: What has been the best book, or as I call it, mental health bible you've read for your mental health? Now, it can be self help or mental health related, but it doesn't exclusively have to be. That's a good point. I don't know. Um... I'm, I'm quite a bad person for reading. I watch quite a lot of... Uh, okay. Well, TV show then. Give me a TV show or, or album. Yeah, let me think. Um, I can't really think where, like, I've got a sort of single message from. I mean, I actually think, like, I can't think where, where, where I've really consumed this message. But, I mean, I think the big one is, like, I would be someone who would feel like I was getting it wrong because the solutions to your problems like this is a solution to do this like you should feel x way about something or like you should be able to meditate you should be able to do these things i, th- I think the biggest lesson I, and i think it's probably the same that's come from like you know multiple sort of philosophy clips and things i've consumed online is is, is just that there isn't sort of a singular answer and i think i was i can nope. be very obsessed by singular answers and the fact that they're you know why am i not feeling like everyone else you know you are engaging with things on your own terms and i don't know what sort of philosophy it is where it's just you can sit with your emotion and just to sit with it 
And you don't actually always need to go and talk to someone about it, but you can sit with it and guest engage in it and not give sort of yourself a hard time about it. I think that is kind of a lesson of importance. I mean, because I've gone through like eras where I've been involved, like I was quite into sort of hypnotherapy as a therapeutic Mm. approach for a while and guess like reading some books on that and I've always been interested in sort of, you know, pseudo-scientific things a bit as well. Like I remember I like read like a book on NLP, not necessarily because I, I thought it was real, but it's just kind of interesting, these sort of thought processes. But I do think stuff like that informs you, guess, insofar as like thinking about how the mind works. But yeah, I mean, I don't know. I, th- I think definitely guess like, I don't know, giving up on a sort of dogmatism about it and just going, no, there, mm. isn't, there isn't like a singular answer to these things. Well, you spoke there about no singular answer. If there was a mantra or quote or phrase that summed up your mental health, what would it be and why? Yeah, I, don't, I can't think of anything particularly poignant. Um, <laughs> I mean, I, I just think it's fundamentally acceptance. I think there's so much pressure mm. to feel like you're getting stuff wrong or you're not the right kind of person. And also, I think we probably have an idea in our society that we are far more malleable than we are. And that's not saying that people aren't highly flexible and highly malleable and highly changeable. But I think there's sometimes a desire that we can sort of reinvent ourselves as anything. And I actually think really getting to know yourself is except you can't endlessly innovate on who you are. Like there are certain aspects to my personality which are so hard baked in, they aren't going to change. And I'm not going to be this other kind of person. And that's okay. That's the thing that like, I think there can be a lot of pressure. Like, you know, you can change yourself. That's not the message at all. But you can't change yourself to the degree where you completely like, if you're the person that's really creative and struggles to be on time for anything and da da da, you can obviously work on that and maybe be Mm. a bit more disciplined, a bit more rigorous, but you're not going to be the person who, who can't stand being late by a minute and needs to set off like half an hour every day. And likewise, That's mate. <laughs> no, no. Also, that person is not going to change to be the free-flowing creative person. Nope. And that's okay. This is the tapestry of people in society. And very rarely is any individual a bad or a good person. They're a mixture of attributes which have positives and negatives. And I think work out what kind of person you are and start to sort of accept that. And I think I could have done that a lot earlier because I'm trying to aspire to some idea of what someone is without actually going, well, who actually am I? Like, I'm, wanna, I'm trying to do this thing all the time, but like, it's actually really ill suited to who I am. So why am I trying to mm. do that or be that? And I think the sooner you can realize that, and I, I wish I'd got that message as a younger person. Cause I think, Oh, you're like, Oh, actually, no, like I'm just different from that person. And yeah, I could admire their attributes and go, isn't that great? They're like that, but I don't have to be like that myself or I can't be like that. And that's okay. I've got two questions left. The first one is what do you love about yourself? Uh, I think um, I think I can be a good, reliable person for people mm. and a helpful person. Like I think, you know, if someone reaches out to me and, and is forthcoming about something, I do try to do what I can to sort of help and assist and, and share wisdom and knowledge or whatever. I think that that's probably a good attribute. I mean, again, I think it, it can sometimes be a problematic attribute in certain situations, but I think that's probably something I would... I would say like, uh, I'm, I'm probably all right at And as a final question, mate, and you can answer this any way you want. It's a broad one. What more do you think we have to do to ensure men from all backgrounds or walks of life feel comfortable and safe in opening up about the mental health issues or just their general mental health if, most importantly, they want to do it? Yeah, it, it, it's a tricky one. I mean, I'm very worried when I see like the research about Gen Z's, how surprisingly supported Andrew Tate is and how you look at even globally, like 
Gen Z men are much more right-leaning than their female counterparts. And you also look like, okay, the UK is a bit different, but a lot of Europe, a lot of the world, like hard right movements are being led by young people, you know, like sort of Brothers of Italy, Maloney's Party and stuff, you know, or Front National um, in like France. They've got strong youth following. And a lot of that is kind of a male anger and a reaction that's world. a vacuum though that's because no one's listening to those men and they've not given yeah, them direction yeah. or purpose so. yeah no, that, that, that's exactly that's exactly my point and i and i also think there can be and i'm, I'm not saying there isn't such a thing as kind of patriarchy and, and sort of male strength but i i think there is a real danger with sort of tarring men as being part of some system of control because a mm. lot of men are very disenfranchised and very weak yep. and not powerful and i think nope. Then, especially working class men they're doing horrendously right now especially in education yeah. university you know i always say that i think it's better to talk about patriarchy in regards to like afghanistan with the taliban or mm. mexico when like thousands of women getting murdered on the street every week every month every year mm. i don't think it's helpful to talk about patriarchy like in the uk yeah i mean i probably differ with you on the degree of it exists but i certainly agree 100 percent with like the fact that i think it's an unuseful idea for particularly disenfranchised working class and less sort of powerful in every sense of the world. Like mm. they, they do not have power. And I, and I also think, you know, I think of like the media world like me and, you know, I, I come from a middle-class background, but I, I, I do kind of think that there's plenty of people who basically look the same as me. They don't really sound too different from me, but will basically be tarred with the same brush mm -hmm. of kind of privileges, like someone like me who has come from more privileged background and, and opportunities maybe that they are missing because they are seen as belonging to a privileged class. It's class, man. Maybe. Class is so, mm. it's just forgotten about. And it's, I, mean, I mean, sorry to interrupt you, but they, you had, mm. uh, I think her name is AJ Adudu, who is a black female presenter. And she said, because she's from a working class background, she did an mm. interview where she was like, class was a much more bigger barrier to me than race in this industry. Mm. No, I just I thought mean, that summed it up, really. I think that's really true. I just think a more nuanced approach to men because, and I and I think the thing is, it's also like this isn't necessarily men's rights to be interested in things like male suicide rates and stuff like mm. like they should be valuable and, and free discussions about this. And it's not to ignore the the multiple problems that women have as well, but I think it's having a holistic discussion where both sides are included and people aren't being kind of uh, neglected. It's not a zero-sum game. Like, you can talk about male suicide without, like, you don't have to, it's not ignoring women's problems. Like, we always have to put these caveats in. I hate the fucking caveats <laughs> we always have to do. It's yeah. like, well, blah, blah, blah. We have, it's not this, ignoring this and blah, blah. And every man has to do it. And I hate it. I hate it. Can we not just say male suicide is a problem? Let's yeah. tackle it. And then in a completely separate conversation, misogyny against women is also a problem we have to tackle yeah, it like yeah. it's we don't have to chuck them both into the, the same conversation no you're right and also i guess like when when someone has the thing of like well you're talking about this but you're not talking about that it's like well people have different interests and that's fine and that's not necessarily sinister it's like i have some very good friends journalists who are, who are like so involved with the conflict in israel and gaza like that's their area and you know they're motivated and passionate about it but you know i wouldn't go to them go like why aren't you talking more about ukraine it's like no people have different interests here and they're valuable voices and these are both issues but everyone doesn't have to talk about everything or caveat it about something else like yeah. you know I think it, it makes it's exhausting, man. It's yeah. exhausting. Right. <laughs> it means the intro to everything becomes very long as well. Yeah. And it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much for coming on. Just checking in podcast and talking to you, mate. Uh, really appreciate it, Freddie. Thanks so much.
Well, that's all we've got time for in this episode of the Just Checking Pod. A big thank you to Andy for being my special guest and for letting me check in with him. I'll put some links where you can find out more about Andy's work, watch Walk by War and follow him on social media in the show notes. As always, thank you to all the venters who've tuned in. Remember, if you've liked what you've heard, please give it a share on social media. Tell your friends or work colleagues about it. If you're feeling generous, write us a review and give us a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts and help us out with the algorithms. If you like what we're doing at Venn and want to support us further, please go to our Patreon. That's www.patreon.com slash venthelpuk. Or you can make a one-off donation to our GoFundMe or go to linktr.ee slash venthelpuk to find out more about all the other ways you can financially support Vent. We hope to check in with you again very soon. And remember, guys, it is always okay to vent. Vent.